0: We've talked several times from the scriptures in Isaiah <clears throat> about what it means to remember. How we are to remember and remind ourselves the, of the mercies of God shown to us, of his past work, of the past times that he has shown his character strongly in our lives, and in our families' lives, in our experience. But I wonder if we've plumbed the depths of that enough. I think Isaiah wonders whether we've plumbed the depths of that enough. So, what does that remembrance, what does remembering God have to do with our witness? What does remembering God have to do with fighting sin? What does remembering God have to do with our eternal rest? For we think often about remembering the works of the Lord to encourage us that he was faithful in the past, he'll be faithful in the future based on what we know about him and his word. But in that remembrance, God through his spirit accomplishes many things in and through us. I want you to place yourself back in the time of Isaiah's day. Still over a hundred years before the southern kingdom is taken into captivity, but they're listening to Isaiah's words They've been under many wicked kings. They're currently under a a king that is is striving to be a better king than in the past. How does this strike them when they see God's mercy upon their nation and then they realized who they were, what they looked like, what their lives were like? Or imagine the, the second audience of this section of Isaiah, those coming out of captivity, coming out of Babylon, that God has made a promise to redeem them out of Babylon and to take them back into their homeland and to have them rebuild the walls and the temple. And they're coming back, and they've just heard Isaiah chapter 60, 61, 62, in the beginning of chapter 63. They've learned about this this future glory that God intends to set up and how marvelous it will be and the perfection that it will be in the absence of sin and then all of a sudden in chapter 63 those first six verses they hear about the judgment of God God this divine warrior raising himself up to judge his enemies and destroy them completely and at the same time we hear those hints as we have all the way through Isaiah that he will also be saving his people but what are they thinking Are they thinking they're part of the saved or are they thinking they're heading to be condemned and destroyed? What makes them part of those who God will save when he rises up with his strong arm on that day? How can they be sure? And what about us? We we claim the name of Jesus. We understand doctrine. We we know that we are claiming all of Jesus' work and none of ours. We know that the promise is eternal rest in the new heavens and new earth as the gathered new Jerusalem in the presence of God, worshiping him forever without sin. We long for that day, and then we walk into our life, and what do we see? Sinfulness. And we start to wonder, am I part of the one who will be judged or the one who will be saved eternally in his presence? Because there is no sin in that place. All the evil is kept out. So what do we do? You see, we can struggle with the same thing if we do not remember. Remember the promises of God. Remember what he has done. Well, Isaiah is moving us into this last section of Isaiah beginning in this, with this prayer beginning in Isaiah 63, verse 7. And it was my goal to preach the entire prayer this morning. I decided Friday that goal was unreachable. There's too much, especially at the beginning, for us to leave uncovered or just to let be summarized because of all the repetition in Isaiah. So if you're wondering, there's no green sheet for next week, there's no discussion guide, because the one from last week we'll cover this week as well. I'll cover part of this sermon this morning. Really, some people look at these first seven verses as the introduction to the sermon. I think it's part, or the prayer, I think it's part of the prayer. I think the remembrance is how Isaiah starts praying, and then he continues on with the request in, in chapter 63, verse 15, all the way to the end of chapter 64. So this morning, we'll cover these first seven verses, this opening of the prayer where remembrance is driving Isaiah as he begins this prayer. So for us this morning, we want to learn from this text how remembering the works of God help us in our proclamation of the character of God to a lost and dying world. We want to learn how remembering helps us fight against sin. We want to learn how remembering helps us stay humble before the sovereign work of God. All of this is tied up into remembering. So for us today, we want to remember, but we want to remember as the scriptures say to remember and to do it profitably through the power of the Spirit. Stand with me, if you will, as we read these seven verses. Isaiah 63, beginning in verse 7, and we'll end this morning in verse 14. I will recount the steadfast love of Yahweh, the praises of Yahweh, according to all that Yahweh has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to their enemy and himself fought against them then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people where is he who brought them out of the sea up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock where is he who put in the midst of them his holy spirit who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name who led them through the depths Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of Yahweh gave them rest. So you led your people to make yourself a glorious name. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So in this section, the whole prayer, which we will cover this week and next week, we are shown four pleas that should mark our prayers. Four pleas that should mark our prayers. Today we will see one plea. And we will see today the foundation that's set in the opening prayer of remembering and all that that accomplishes and what that spurs Isaiah on to pray. So the first plea, the one we'll cover this morning is, Oh, Lord, help us remember the past. Help us remember the past. The first aspect of this is remembering you faithfully loved and saved your people in the past. Look at verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of Yahweh. Now let's just look at these for a moment. The word recount there is the same word that we find in chapter 62 in verse 6 when we learn that that the Messiah has put on the walls of Jerusalem watchmen and all day long and all the night they shall never be silent. You You who put Yahweh in remembrance take no rest. Remember, The Messiah said he would take no rest at the beginning of chapter uh, 62, and now he says he's placed watchmen on the wall so that they would give him no rest, always bringing the Lord's name and the Lord's actions into remembrance. That remembrance is the same word in verse 7. I will recount. I will remember. I will faithfully remember the steadfast love, and that's that wonderful word that we point out all the time, kesed the covenant faithfulness of God. And it's in the plural, it's it's this majestic view of God's loving covenant faithfulness to his people. And if you look in that first line of verse 7, you see steadfast love. And in the last line of verse 7, you see steadfast love. In the Hebrew text, that's the first word of verse 7 and the last word of verse 7. So when we've learned about all our structure and our parallelism, what do we know that verse 7 is about? His steadfast love. It starts and ends with God's steadfast love. And Isaiah expounds this a little bit. I will recount the kesed, the the steadfast love of Yahweh. That's where he starts. And then that second part of that that, uh, parallelism, the praises of Yahweh. Do you see how he ties those together? When we recount... God's covenant faithfulness to his people, we are praising him. Recounting his long-suffering, steadfast love to us is a way of praising the Lord. And when we state those things, and we'll talk about what those things are in a minute, but when we state those things, the, the scripture says here that it's the same as praising the Lord. The steadfast love of the Lord, when it's recounted, is the praise of the Lord. And that connection is strong for us. Because sometimes we don't feel like praising Yahweh. Now we know we should and we would never admit that, but sometimes the world has kind of just grabbed us up and put us in in this bear hug and we don't feel like praising. So what do we do? We start remembering. And when we remember and we verbalize what we're remembering, what are we doing? We're praising the Lord. And when God's people praise Him, He is glorified. So right from the beginning, we can learn right here, just for you and I, practical experience, that when we recount God's covenant faithfulness and we do so verbally, we are praising Him. We are praising Him in a way that brings Him glory, but also those around us that hear us. We, it's not just doing this in our, in our minds, it's doing it with our mouth. And those around us that hear us are also then caught up in that praise. And it may be somebody who's a believer who needs reminded... It may be somebody who is a believer who just needs reminding that, listen, we still have reason to praise God. It may be lost people around you as you lift up praises to God by remembering his covenant faithfulness to you and to your family and to his covenant people throughout history. We are engaging in praise that brings God glory. Now, he just starts right there. He just throws it out there as if this is a pre-known supposition. Everybody knows this. I'm going to recount the praises of my God, and the, or the, the, the covenant faithfulness of my God, and that is praising him all in the same breath. Now, he gives us some specifics, doesn't he? Look at the third line. According to all that Yahweh has granted us. So we're not just saying, thank you, Lord, for being faithful to your covenant on our behalf. Thank you. We can say that, but Isaiah is saying, be specific according to all, everything, everything that you can recount, all that you can remember, according to all that Yahweh has granted us. Here the I and the us is, is Isaiah speaking on behalf of the people. Now remember where they're sitting. Remember that introduction. They're contemplating their own life in light of the, the divine warrior, warrior who raises up in 63, 1 through 6. And the most strong language in those six verses is about judgment, vengeance against those who are his enemies, those who sin without repentance. A reminder of salvation, but it brings them right into their own life. And where do they begin? Praising God for who he is. So we start there as well according to all that Yahweh has granted us. Everything, all the blessings, and it's restated in the fourth line, and the great goodness to the house of Israel. So all that he has granted us and the great goodness that he has shown the house of Israel. Now, especially in this chapter, in these chapters of Isaiah, who is the house of Israel? Is it just the nation of Israel? It is not. It is all God's people. All those who are chosen by him, set aside for his glory, who've repented of sin and trust in him and worship him. So this is the way we begin. We begin recounting his steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness, which results in praising him. And we do that according to all that he has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel. Now, we remind ourselves all the time that the way to pull yourselves out of funk or anger or depression is to do what? It's to start thanking God, right? It's very difficult to be mad at somebody when you're thanking God for who they are in Christ. It's very difficult to be overwhelmed by your situation and have a pity party when you're thanking God for all he's doing in the midst of it, all he's done in the past and all he's done in the midst of it. So we're already seeing a twofold application for us. One, remembering these great and grand deeds that he's done is a way of praising him and also letting other people know about his character, but also it's already starting to be a tool for us to overcome our sin and to fight our sin because remembering what he has done pulls us out of funk, doesn't it? Now, this is a good thing. We have times, Paige and I have times in our lives... Where at the time, I remember talking about, we need to write this down. Because God is just, he is just carrying us. I mean, if if the eagle's wings were ever prominent in our life, we can think of one time where he just arranged all these details. Our faith wasn't strong enough to know how to follow him. He just arranged all these details and took us from one place into another, plopped us down, said, there. We didn't have to do anything. And there were so many little details that he did. Selling a house, causing the, the evaluations of the military in my in, for my medical evaluations, causing that to happen in a certain way at a certain time. Being able to move right from the military, all of a sudden finding out I'm being discharged on a medical discharge. No big thing, just a problem in my knee, in my leg, but I couldn't stand at attention. If you're a military musician, you can't stand attention, you're out of luck. I can just tell you, your job needs you to stand at attention. And causing that and then finding out we had six weeks and we're out of a job. Six weeks. God sold our house, took us to a church ministry, let us find another house, dropped us right there in time, and we started just like we never missed a beat. All these little tiny things are ways of us being able to tell people who are struggling as if when they think God isn't, isn't caring about their situation, we can recount the glorious mercies of God to us through that time, and other times as well, but we can recount that time, and it gives them encouragement. It reminds us, especially me, who is prone to complaining sometimes, you probably aren't. I know no. but I'm prone to complain at times. This is the key for me saying, you need to stop complaining. Your God is faithful. Your God never leaves or forsakes you. So we're already in a very practical application for us, just like in the same way that those coming out of exile and in the same way of those in Isaiah's day in that late 7th, early 6th century should already be thinking. And what are they contemplating? They're contemplating their sinfulness. This is what they're contemplating. Are we part of the salvation when the mighty divine warrior rises, or are we part of the judgment? Look back at your text. According to all that Yahweh has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, to his people, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. So you see these according to's that we, that we see in this section. All of what we are doing is according to God's work. We're responding to God's work, to, to the way he has uh, sustained his people. Now, you could go through all kinds of events in the nation of Israel and point to them, and the nation of Israel is doing that as well in their minds as Isaiah begins this prayer. But Isaiah is taking us to one particular place that he wants us to remember. But he also wants to take us to another place first. But look at verse 8. For, so I will recount the steadfast love of Yahweh, the praises, his, the, the, all that he's granted us, all the goodness according to his compassion, according to his kessid, his covenant faithfulness, his steadfast love. For, he said, surely they are my people. Children who will not deal falsely. Surely they are my people. Now what's he talking about here? We're already entering into that Exodus language, aren't we? We've seen this several times in Isaiah, where Isaiah uses the Exodus to point us back to what God has done so he can point people forward to what he will do in the future. And this is already beginning that. Israel was a chosen nation. And this is what's being reminded. When he chose them, what did he say? I will be your God and you will be my people. And then he said, if you obey me, you have blessing. If you disobey me, you have curses. And that's the covenant relationship they had because God is faithful to his covenant. He's faithful to give blessings. He's also faithful to give the curses. Those curses brought some of Israel back to repentance at different times because this was the character of God. But we are part of God's elect people as well. If you are here this morning and you are claiming Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've repented of your sin and trusted in him, the Bible says that if that is true and you are now God's child, you are now Christ's brother that what ha- and sister, that what, where you are is you are standing in the benefits of being chosen by God. The, the benefits of being the elect. You are now seated in the heavenly places with Christ with all the spiritual blessings, says Ephesians, right? So this is a reminder to us as well. It's all about you and your work. No, it's about God and what he has said he would do and the promises that he has made. These are his people, not because they woke up one morning and said, well, I think it'd be benefit us to follow Yahweh instead of Baal. I think that'd be beneficial. What do you think, wifey? What do you think, children? Yeah, I think that w- This is not what happened. God chose a people for himself, for his own glory, not for anything to do with them. And he's done the same thing for us. We are beneficiaries of being God's children. Surely we are his people, says the scripture. And we'll see that this starts right at the beginning when God speaks to Moses at the burning bush. He calls his people his people and reminds Moses of that. We'll look at that section in just a moment. But look at the second line. For for he said, surely they are my people. Children, I hope your version says sons. Sons is the word, it's not children, it's sons. So I guess children is, a, is the, the endeavor to make sure that women are not left out of this, but we have a theology that we understand what the Bible means when this idea of son works out, right? This is all of God's people. Again, Exodus language. He, he talks to Pharaoh and he says, This is my son, let my son go. And he says also, let my people go. But this is his way of saying, these are mine sons who will not deal falsely. Now, why is that thrown in there? Because God is a covenant faithful God who does not deal falsely. Therefore, the people that he chooses that are his children, he's expecting them not to deal falsely. Do you remember the parable of the vineyard way back in chapter 5? God planted the vineyard and he hedged it in and he took care of it and he he tended that vineyard. He fed it and it was supposed to be producing all kinds of good fruit and he expected that. Why? Because it was the work of his hands. Amen? And so he comes back to it and what's he find? Stink fruit. fruit. And he's like, why am I finding this? Because God expects his people to reflect his character because he has invaded them with his presence. He has invaded them, as we'll see here, with the power of the Holy Spirit. And he does expect that. And here it's just a, it's a a statement of fact. They are my people, children who will not deal falsely. It's the expectation. Sons. Sons who will not deal falsely. And look what it says. And he became their savior. This is the language of the Exodus, Exodus 14, 30. Thus Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. So we're already even now more entering into the Exodus language because we're remembering, we're remembering the past, how God has been faithful. And we know that remembering the Exodus is the way of remembering that was the quintessential deliverance in the Old Testament, wasn't it? All the deliverance that would be expected could be traced back to that. If God did that there, and he delivered his people from the hand of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, he will deliver at his power. And we've seen that in Isaiah four or five different times. Remember when he's talking to the, the, the people who worship the false gods, and he's saying, tell me about the past, and tell me why it happened, and tell me about the future, and why it will happen, and what, what's going on with that. And we saw crickets. Crickets. There was silence. No one can do this except Yahweh because He is the God who created the universe. He is the one who's faithful to His covenant. He became their Savior. Look at verse 9. How did He become their Savior? In all their affliction, He was afflicted. And the angel of His presence saved them. So we've seen this angel throughout the Old Old Testament. But here's what's in their mind. Things like Exodus 14. At the crossing of the Red Sea in verse 19. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. Exodus 23. Yahweh promising that his people would conquer the Canaanites. He says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will put an enemy to your enemy, I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, I will blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Ten chapters later, Exodus 33, Moses said to Yahweh, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, That this nation, consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, This is Yahweh, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring me up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other nation on the face of the earth. And Yahweh said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So when we see in all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of of his presence saved them, we see there's great case to be made that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. And we know that also from verses in the New Testament, like Colossians 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Or Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Or 2 Corinthians 4, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we also know that this takes us right back to Isaiah 53, doesn't it? Which has guided this section of Scripture. Keep your finger in Isaiah 63 and turn back to Isaiah 53. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. That is the suffering servant to be crushed. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering of guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied So when Isaiah says in chapter 63 that in all their affliction he was afflicted, what's in his mind is the work of Jesus Christ introduced to us in Isaiah 53, fulfilled in all of the evidence of the New Testament. That the way that we are saved, the way that we are the people upon whom his affections are set, the way that we know that we were part of his chosen people is because we are aligned with the one who has suffered, who entered into our affliction and the angel of his presence saved them. God was present with these people in the deliverance and God is present with these people through his son today in his work. Look how this ends in verse 8. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Now, that's that language that we have seen already. We've seen that language in Exodus 19. He bore, he bore his people on eagles' wings. Twice in Isaiah 40, chapter chapter 40, verse 11, 46, verse 4, he bears us up like on under eagles' wings. So it is the Lord who is having pity, mercy upon his children in his love. He redeemed them, and he's the one who carries them on. He is the one who is responsible for the deliverance that we receive. Now in this affliction that we see, we also see this is more language of the Exodus. One more place you're gonna turn. Keep your finger there and turn to Exodus chapter three. Exodus chapter three. I'm going to start in verse in verse seven. This is the conversation with Moses and Yahweh at the burning bush. Then Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go? And the, and the complaint that we heard earlier read. So all of this is drawing the Israelites back to this this quintessential deliverance. And we're drawing out, Isaiah for us is drawing out the language of salvation from that that section of deliverance in Exodus. He's also reminding us of what what we have already learned from the suffering servant passages. He's also forecasting what will happen in the future in his day, but it's in the past in our day where we see Jesus dripping from all of this. All of this is, is pointing us forward to Jesus and his work so that God will redeem his people through the sacrifice and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And this is what he's remembering them. And then, then, once he does that, he's the one carrying them. He's the one lifting them. His people didn't get saved, and now they're strong and, and can do everything on their own. It's God who continues to get the glory. And we've already seen where our setting is. Our setting is both deliverance from Egypt, but it's not just deliverance from Egypt, is it? Just as we learned in Exodus chapter 3, it is deliverance into the promised land. God will complete what he started. He doesn't bring them out of, uh, from under the, the uh, slavery of Egypt and then say, okay, now you're on your own. Go ahead and get on to the promised land. He's the one who carries them. He's the one who redeems them and gives them his law. He's the one who redeems them and carries them all the way through. And we'll even see that language later on. So we're remembering you faithfully loved and saved your people in the past. That's the place we have to start. The second thing, your people consistently rebelled against you and brought your wrath. Look at verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Now, rebellion is one of the primary themes in Isaiah, isn't it? It was in the second verse, the second verse of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, Verse 2, a different word is used, but it still means rebellion. A different Hebrew word is used. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Yahweh has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up. Actually, again, sons. Have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. So that's the case in the second verse of Isaiah. And then remember, Isaiah chapter 1 is that introduction to the introduction. And at the end of that chapter, in verse 18, or later in that chapter, not the end, he says, Come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, the same Hebrew word is in chapter 63, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. So we're seeing those opening chapters say, this is the problem. All the way through Isaiah, we see how God is dealing with His people in light of that problem, how He intends to solve that problem for His people in the Old Testament, how He intends to send His Son to solve that problem for all of His people. And all of that is brought to us here when we see in verse 10, but they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. It's interesting, in verse 10, Holy Spirit together We see that in verse 10, and we see that in verse 11. There's only one other place in the Old Testament where Holy and Spirit are used together to designate the third person of the Trinity. Twice here, and one in Psalm 51. Cast me not away from from your presence, O Lord, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now, I'm not saying that these are the only places that the Holy Spirit is referred to. In the Old Testament, but it, it is the only two of the only three places where he is called the Holy Spirit as the name of his entity, right here, and he grieved the Holy Spirit. Now that reminds us automatically that, that the people, as they rebelled, grieved his Holy Spirit, of Ephesians 4:30, the command to us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Right, This is clear for us in the New Testament that our sin, unrepentant and acting in ways that do not glorify God, grieves the Holy Spirit. It's right here in the Old Testament as well. When they rebelled against him, which to rebel against God is to what? It's to sin. It's to not listen to his word. He speaks, you say no thanks. He commands, you say yeah, I think I'll do something else. And so when that happens, that's grieving God, grieving his spirit. And it's the spirit who was guiding God's people throughout that whole deliverance from Egypt. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So here's the problem, right in the center. Isaiah tells us that we need to remember the faithfulness of God because we sin against God. We, even as believers, sin against God and rebel against his spirit. We, even if we are part of the elect, are fighting sin in this life, and we sin against God. So what are we to do? The first thing Isaiah says is remember who God is and what he's done. That's step one. Remembering that. And then the sin comes to remind us of the past. Do you need that reminder? Do I need to remind you that you sin? No. So we know that we sin. Remember when you first got saved, somebody might have told you how to pray using the acronym of ACTS, adoration, confession. supplication, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Follows the same pattern, doesn't it? Now, there are many other ways to pray found in Scripture. Amen? There are many other patterns. There are many other forms of prayer. But starting with who God is and then confessing who we are, even if we are believers, is the way that we start fighting that sin. Because if we're confessing who God is and we've just reminded ourselves that he is the one who is identified in his suffering as we suffered for sin, and we could have looked at all of Isaiah 53 and pointed out multiple passages that would do that, if we're remembering that Christ has come and he's accomplished what God set out for him to accomplish and those who believe in him have their sin forgiven, that is the first step to remind ourselves that we can fight. And that's what the life, the Christian life is, is it not? That's where we park in Romans 6 all the time. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. So we're fighting. That, that can summarize the Christian life in, in just one sentence. Fight against sin as you turn to Christ. Or better, turn to Christ so you're fighting against sin. And that's brought to us here as well. They rebelled and they grieved his Holy Spirit. And Isaiah does this on purpose. He reminds his people in his prayer of what God has done in the past, and then he confesses on their behalf that their forefathers have sinned. And as we get into the prayer proper in verse 15 and following, we'll see that he's going to draw that out even more. So we won't spend any more time on that here. But I want you to see the connection here. Verse 10. They rebelled... They they grieve the Holy Spirit, therefore, there's a consequence, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Why does he do that? Because he's a covenant faithful God, right? He's called them to obedience and they have disobeyed, so he is faithful. Even in the midst of it, he remains faithful and he fought against them. And then look at the next line. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Now maybe your version says, then his people remembered Moses. The Hebrew text says, then he remembered. Now it is a little bit confusing because the rest of what is said in verse 11, 12, 13, and 14 seem to be from the people. But I want to let the text stand. I think the ESV has done well here and the other uh, translations that do this to say They rebelled and grieved, therefore he turned, then he remembered. And what he, Yahweh, remembers is the days of old of Moses and his people. And then we get into verse 11 in the third line, and we have a series of questions. Now, does it immediately turn where Isaiah is saying, they rebelled at that time? So God turned against them, and then God remembered. And then is it God who continues to remember? My outline shows that. I think I'm contradicting myself here, though. Wrote the outline two weeks ago. Studied a bit since then. So I think the, the questions do have to reflect the people. Now, I think they could easily be God remembering. The Bible says several times that God remembers. He remembers his faithfulness. He remembers his covenant. He remembers his promises. It's not that he forgot them. But in the language that we use, God speaks to us in a way we understand. And God said, I'm acting based on those promises. So he could be reminding us of, where's that God? And he's telling us, I'm still there. I'm still the same faithful God. So somewhere in here, it shifts to the people asking questions until we get to the last verse. So you led This is Isaiah reminding the people, talking to God, we remember your character, we remember that we are sinners, we remember all of your work and how you led your people. So let's not get hung up in that, and let's see what Isaiah or God himself is remembering. He remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. That brings us clearly and forcefully into the days of the Exodus. And first question. Where is he who brought them out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? So here, I think we're going to progress through these questions, but here we're talking about coming up out of the Red Sea, that whole story of God uh, parting the Red Sea, so his people walk across on dry land and then swallow up the Egyptians. You can find all of that in Exodus 14. With the shepherds of his flock, plural, Psalm 78, 19, and 20 refer to Moses and Aaron as the ones who God used to lead his people out. So I think we're talking about Moses and Aaron. We have a historical setting that Isaiah wants his people and wants us to remember of what God has done. And the question is, where is he if he's coming in judgment and we are sinners? Where is the God who did all this leading and saving? Where is that God? Question one, where is he who brought them out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Question two, where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? Now here's where we see the Trinity again. We see the Trinity earlier in 7, 8, and 9 with God the Father, God the Son doing the entering into the suffering, the Holy Spirit being the one who does the guiding and he is grieved. Here we see him again being the one who is the guiding spirit. This again ties us to the Exodus. We have verses like um, Haggai 2.5, According to the covenant I made with with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in the midst of you forever. So even there we're reminded that the covenant that he made with them, he gave him his spirit in the process of that. So the Holy Spirit is prominent in this section as well. Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? This is the God who gave them the strength, gave them the leadership, endowed their leaders with wisdom, endowed their their sculptors and their musicians and their creators with the power of the Spirit so they could create according to what God wanted them to do. This is the God who sent his Spirit. Where is he now? Again, the where uh, where is he carries into verse twelve. Where is he who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? So the power that's right next to Moses, as Moses accomplishes God's will, Moses is the vehicle God uses. But who is the strength? It is God. Who is the one who determines what he will do? It is God. Who is the power and and wisdom behind everything that happens? It is God. It is Moses that he uses, the Moses who, who fights against him and says, someone else. Where is he who divided the waters before them? Exodus 14, 21. To make, him, to make for himself an everlasting name. Ah, God works to glorify himself. And if God did not glorify himself, we should be suspect of whether he was God, right? You shouldn't glorify yourself, and I shouldn't glorify myself. But God has to glorify himself because there is no one greater. And everything does is to make his name glorious. Now, this is a common theme in Isaiah. I don't want to have to bring all those different references in. But remember, a common theme is that God is acting so the nations would know who he was. That everything he did and everything his people did was to convey the works of God and the character of God so that, chapter 2 of Isaiah, all the nations would come to the mountain. And they would be able to seek from God's people and from him himself how they should live and how he wanted them to act and live toward each other. So this is, this is coming into the end of Isaiah, summarizing all of those thoughts. And Isaiah says, listen, this is what God has always done. And I tell you today, this is what he does today. It's not by your strength, it's by his. It's not by anything that you do to come to salvation, it's all of God's work. There's nothing that you bring to salvation except your sin. That's it. Everything else is given to you as a gracious gift from God. These are his covenant faithful mercies to those who he has elected from the foundation of the world and granted repentance and faith so that they would become his people. And he gets all the glory. And if he gets all the glory, what do we do? We respond in humility remembering not only helps us to deal with our sin, not only helps us to to praise God publicly so that lost people hear about them and saved people are encouraged, but it also brings us to the point where we can function humbly because we know God has started it, He continues it, He bears us, He carries us, and He will provide all we need to live with Him forever. Look at verse 12. Who caused His glorious arm... Now that's his power to go at the right hand of Moses. So Moses' power is God's power behind him who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name who led them through the depths. Now we have two similes here that compare. He's done all of this leading them out of Egypt, but this is where I think it expands. It's not only leading out of Egypt, but it's also into the promised land. Look at at, uh, the second line of verse 13. This all looked like a horse in the desert. They did not stumble. Now, if, you, if we could just place ourselves at that parting of the Red Sea, which is greater than the movies would have shown it, right? It, more great miracle than that. When they walked over on dry land, can you imagine how rocky that must have been at the bottom? How, how, how much it would have been where they're walking through and they would see rocks and they would see, they, they would see the things that were left as the water dried up? And this is the imagery. Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble because horses, when they walk across that, have this uncanny way of keeping their balance. And so that is the picture that's given. They were strengthened. They were undergirded as God parted the Red Sea for them to cross. But look at the second simile. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of Yahweh gave them rest. I think that different image there, it's hard to picture that in the deliverance from the Red Sea. Maybe it is talking about the same event, but I think it's widening this, that God is faithful. He doesn't just deliver them from, he delivers them to his destination. So this is the, the crossing of the Jordan, when God does that miracle to bring them into Jericho as they begin to take the promised land. I think that's the picture that's given here because they're going into their rest. And the promised land is always given as the place of their rest if they take it according to how God has said that that would be their land of milk and honey, the place where they would rest in him because it's his land for them. Now, this is the end of the picture here. So you led in this way, you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Psalm 115, one, not to us, O Yahweh, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love, your kessid, and your faithfulness. Now I want you to turn to a place where the acts of God has actually accomplished this so you can see how you give glory to God when you recount the acts of God. Just go to one place, the final place you'll turn today, Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. Beginning in verse 8. Rahab protecting the spies is our setting. Two chapters later, we'll see them crossing over the Jordan. But here are the, the spies being sent in and Rahab hiding them. Look at verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So just hearing about these mighty acts of God brings Rahab not only to praise God for his actions, but to show how God's actions had the effect on everybody else, and then based on the character of God, for her to be able to say, I'll help you, but I want you to help me, and the spies agreed to that. All because God has acted, and people have shouted out his praises by recounting what he has done. And this is what we do when we talk about God to people. We, we say, well, how, what do we have to say to him? And then I think I'm a Jesus freak and, and all of that kind of stuff. But if we just talk about what God has done, it brings the people that God is drawing to himself onto their knees. Because they then begin to worship this God. They are overcome by his power. They are overcome. When you tell them about the gospel, they are overcome that this God is powerful enough to destroy them and because of his holiness and his perfection he will but he sent his son he sent his son to live and to die and to be raised again and to ascend to the right hand of the father to rule and reign with all authority on heaven and earth he this is the same god who will destroy you if you refuse to repent he's the same god who sent his son to save you if you repent and he says i choose my people No one is going to fall through the cracks, Jesus says. All that the Father has given me, I'll lose a couple. I will lose none. Now this is, we, we bring all of this together for us today. If we are professing Christ, we are part of the elect. And that has an effect on us. It has an effect that it changes us. We are now no longer in bondage to sin in the same way the the Israelites were in bondage to Egypt, we have been set free from that sin. Amen? We have been set free. Why? Because God has sent one who's entered into the suffering of that sin. This is exactly the argument that's made from Psalm 95 and picked up by the author of Hebrews that we've been through several times, twice already in the book of Isaiah, let alone when we preach through Hebrews. But Psalm 95 and the sermon in Hebrews 3 and 4, this is exactly what's said. Because where do we end here? You gave them rest. The Spirit of Yahweh gave them rest. And that's what we're promised. And so what does Psalm 95 tell us? Especially in the hands of the author of Hebrews? The author of Hebrews says, enter that rest. Be sure that you've entered that rest. Do not die in your sin like they died in the wilderness. And they died because of their rebellion, because of their sin, because they walked away from God. There's still a time to enter this rest, so you need to enter. And that's where we are today. If you have not entered that rest, today is your day to do that. Today is the day to take what you learned last week in chapter 63 about the divine warrior who will come and judge. What we've learned even so far just in these few verses of remembrance and know that God is powerful and will accomplish what he intends and he is holy and righteous and he is strong. And so on that day, you will not be able to stand on your own. You need someone else to carry you. You need someone else to have righteousness that God sees so that he doesn't destroy you because of your sinfulness. And that person is Jesus Christ. He is the one who came and lived and died. So today is the time for you to enter in to Christ, into union with him by turning away from your sin and turning toward God so that you now can have the, the promise of entering into your rest because just as God did what he promised, he not only delivered him from Egypt, but he delivered him into the promised land. Just as he did that, he will continue and, do, and, and deliver you where he promises. He's delivered you from sin, and you are still sinning even in this day. But he will deliver you to the place where there is no sin, if your trust is in Christ. Amen. So it's living and breathing the word of God in your life and out of your life that will strengthen you as you fight sin, that will give you an evangelistic bent to your speech around other people, an encouraging bent to your speech when you're with other believers. And it's also bringing glory to God because He will accomplish what He sets out to accomplish. All of that before He even starts the body where He asks God for the mercy that He is foreshadowing here. We are dependent on nothing but mercy. It's his grace. That's it. We have no other choice but to throw ourselves on the king of the universe and to throw ourselves on Christ, who lived and died so that we, and was resurrected so that we might have life. Remembering all of that is the foundation of our prayer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for grace to us, such clear picture of your character and who we are as human beings. A clear picture of the promise that you have given us in Christ. A clear picture of your covenant faithfulness. For you will accomplish what you set out to do. Both in the destruction of the wicked and the deliverance of the righteous. And you will be glorified perfectly in both. So we come to you, Father, today thanking you for this reminder to remember that we might remember all that you've done in the past, both in your works, giving us mercy and grace and sustaining and carrying us, but also remembering what Christ has done so that we might be the people who glorifies you by crucifying sin through the power of the gospel, that we remember that Christ lived and died and rose again, and we have been buried with him, and now we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to him So strengthen us to do these things, to be a stronger witness, to be a stronger fighter of our sin for your glory, that we would be more humble as we recognize that it's all because of you, your power, your wisdom, your desire, to the praise of your glorious grace that you redeem a people for yourself. So we praise you for this in Jesus' name, amen.